Dad, when we come before you this morning, to thank you um, for this beautiful day and uh, for the rain um, and for your, for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace, which is going to be here this morning. Uh, Father, I pray you, you'd open your word to speak to our hearts and to our minds this morning and you'd uh, reveal something new to us that you'd, uh, you'd work through through Dave um, and you'd allow him to speak to us uh, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So I was an hour more tired this morning than uh, you guys. Um, and an hour less prepared. So uh, let's go ahead and take a look at Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Whoever gets there first and would like to read it out, read it out nice and loud.
if you're wondering if you're in the right place and, uh, and you like to go deep, this is probably the right place. So, um, I was telling you a little bit about John uh, last week. Um, so I always, when I come to any, any portion of Scripture, um, the first thing I always want to do is I want to, before I even start reading, I usually like to identify um, something about what I'm about ready to read. So I want to know what kind of literature it is, because that helps, helps me get my mind in the right uh, framework for understanding. And so when I look at uh, most of the Bible is narrative literature. And John is, is narrative literature. Um, it's a specific kind of narrative. It's what we call gospel. So we would expect that there's going to be an evangelical message in it, um, that it's going to be specifically about Christ, um, not implicitly but explicitly. And uh, I always ask, when I, when I get to that, I try and read through several times without uh, getting bogged down. Because it's really easy to get bogged down. Um, in fact, I got bogged down this morning. My tired brain was trying to read through some material in preparation. I found that I got bogged down, and the next thing I know, I was rereading the paragraph, rereading the paragraph, rereading the paragraph. So I tried other strategies. Thought, I'll read the first sentence and the last sentence and go to the next paragraph rather than get bogged down. Right? And I still got bogged down. So, <laughs> but when we read, we should. Your first attempt should be just to read through, and I'd say almost as quickly as you can, looking for the highlights. What's it about in general, right? Um, one of the things, if you read through John really quickly, you'll see the word belief pop up a lot. And so you're, you're looking for kind of trends. You'll, you'll find a, a trend of belief and a struggle about belief and a struggle about understanding who this guy called Jesus is. And I try and read through that way three times before I start a, an analytical reading. So I want to become familiar with, uh, with the text. And then when I start an analytical read, I, I ask uh, the who, what, why, when, where questions. Right? Uh, who is this that wrote this? Who is it written to? Um, what's it about? Why was it written? What was the occasion? Is it, was there something going on at that point in history that I need to read more about, study a little bit about? Um, when did it take place? Um, where did it take place? And of course, to help answer those questions, I bring up things like this, maps, I bring up uh, uh, history, books, and that kind of stuff. There's a lot of information today on the web, so a lot of times if you are curious about something, you can just Google and I know it's not polite to do it in church, but um, there are times when I'll Google in church. No, seriously, I and mean, this is a terrible thing, but um, and I'm not encouraging this. But what will happen is in the course of listening to Pastor Bob, he'll pick my, uh, my interest about some aspect, and I'll be sitting there kind of pondering. So your brain can work much faster than you can speak. Right? In fact, about 30 times faster. So I've got 30... 30 times the speed in processing as Pastor Bob is moving from one word to the next. And it, I get these ideas, and it's like, well, you know, I want to know a little bit more about that. I want to know a little bit more about Zebedee. I want to know a little bit more about um, whatever the topic is, right? So um, I'll nudge Karen, who's already Googling, and, uh, and I'll take <laughs> Karen, get your intelligent device here. 
because I want to I want to find out more about this while I'm also listening to Bob. I want you to. It's not uh, a disinterest in the sermon; rather, it's a great interest in the sermon, and so I'll dig down. That's just kind of who I am, and uh, and those are the the questions we want to ask. So this last week, um, and I encourage you to use those tools. Last week, I started introducing uh, John, and we were looking at the who question. Uh, John is 21 chapters, so if you do your quick read through, the first thing you notice is that John is 21 chapters. And you'll notice that, that there's kind of a disconnect between the first 18 verses of the first chapter, the main body of it, and then the last chapter. And the reason why is because they were probably written at different points in time for a different purpose. And, uh, but, you know, we'll get into that in a minute. That's part of the, the what maybe the how. Who is this guy John? There are lots of Johns in history. Well, this is um, James's brother. Brother James. Sons of Thunder. Yeah. Which you said last week they were probably rowdy boys. Yeah, they were rowdy boys wearing their leathers, riding their Harleys into the local market. He was also called the beloved one that Jesus loved. Yeah. Um, he was the longest lived of all the apostles. And he ended yep. up on Pat, Patmos, the island. He was yep. exiled there. He also wrote uh, John, John 1, 2, and 3, and Revelation. Yep. So you've been doing, see, those are the, the background questions that you obviously did a little bit of research or, or did some Googling on the web. Was his character John, and uh, and sure enough, we understand that he was uh, brother of James. He was a fisherman, so he was a simple man, son of Zebedee. And uh, last week, I introduced the idea that Zebedee uh, may have been more of a first name than a last name, but it would be. I mean, you could look at it either way. There's not uh, great historical evidence either way. Uh, <laughs> John may have been a junior, or he may have been the first of his family named John, son of Zebedee. Um, and what we know is that, that they lived in an area called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. You'll, you'll notice, I don't know if you can really see it, but the Sea of Galilee kind of looks like Africa, right? And up here in the north part of Africa, there's a little indentation. That's because the Jordan River runs right down through here. And this is where it dumps into this larger collection area, which we call the Sea of Galilee. Right there, where the Jordan River comes in, it's really kind of marshy, and you know how it is when a river runs into a lake, you kind of have a little wider area. Um, that's where Bethsaida is, off to the side. And at the time of uh, John and James, as fishermen in this village, the fishing village called Bethsaida, um, were there, it actually went right up to the Sea of Galilee. So if you if you were to go there today, you'll notice that it's almost a mile back, not quite a mile back, where you would find the ruins of Bethsaida. And this was kind of a historical town. It was there before the time of Jesus by maybe 500 years or so. So it was an area where they had actually built up some city gates and things like that. Is that where the, then there's pools? No. So... Uh, there is uh, pools that are inside the Sheep Gate of Jerusalem uh, called Bethesda. Mm. 
So we got another another B sound, uh, and it's very easy to get it confused. Uh, if I hadn't actually been there, I wouldn't know for sure that it was Bethsaida. Uh, because, and let me blow it up and see if it actually says that, so I'm not lying to you here. I believe you. Okay, so Tiberius, which was a Roman town. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit. Yeah, Bethsaida. Um, so Bethsaida, you, here's a little bit bigger picture. You kind of see that kind of spit. Bethsaida's on this side. I'll point out a couple of things uh, that, are, that are here and unique. Um, this area over here is a very high ridge. Today this is called Golan Heights. And uh, from this, so this area here is all kind of a, a high plane. And it comes to a very sharp edge and it drops down to this uh, depression, which is the Sea of Galilee. So when we read about the pigs, that uh, Jesus cast the uh, demon out of the Gesserine man, uh, Gesera, was, that's in this area here, and probably that was this high cliff here that those pigs ran off and down into the Sea of Galilee, right? So Bethsaida is on that side. Uh, so a lot of people would like to think that the what we call the Sermon on the Mount would have been right here. Um, in that part, and that after the, Jesus gave this great sermon, he came down, got on a boat, and sailed across to Capernaum because Peter's mother-in-law lived in Capernaum. And one of the things you'll notice is that this northern part of the Sea of Galilee was uh, kind of a center of commerce for uh, the Jewish people that were in that region, the, the Hebrew peoples. Um, and that they were called Jews because um, at that time the, the remnant that came back from the uh, Babylonian uh, exile, and they were exiled to Babylon, and the Persians released them, um, that was the last remnant of the people which were from Judea, which is in the south. But they came back and they resettled the land, and then those Jews that came in, they kind of had a center of commerce up here in the north. You'll notice Tiberius over here was a big Roman city. And, uh, and even though there were Jews there, it, it was a different kind of commerce. It was almost entirely Gentile. Um, and this area here is called the Decapolis, because there are ten cities in here. And um, they were primarily Gentile as well. So there's this Jewish center of commerce here, and the reason that it was set up here is because the trade route would come down from the north, and it would curve along the Sea of Galilee here, going right through Capernaum, and then it would go down into uh, this valley as a way of getting across. So if they wanted to go to the coastal plain, and they were taking a shortcut around the Sea of Galilee, they would kind of come this route here, and then take one of these passes. This is Mount Carmel here. And there are some passes you can see that cut through from the Jezreel Valley out to the coastal plain. And so Capernaum was a strategic city. Um, Matthew, the tax collector who we read about, he probably had a tax booth set up near Capernaum. And the reason why is because people would be coming down the road and you wanted to collect your taxes before they came in to do their business. You want to catch them while they got the money, not after they spent it all. So he was uh, on a trade route while John and James and Peter were actually over here in Bethsaida. 
and it shows Bethsaida in a little bit, but there was actually a, um, a mini port area there where they would launch their fishing boats from. Um, and that's where John was from. Is that where he was born and raised? That area right there? Um, you know, that's a good question. So I haven't done the background research on uh, where he was born, but I suspect that he was probably born in this area, and uh, Peter as well, and that um, there's this ancestral... Um, to, today, we, uh, where you're born isn't where you end up, right? Like, I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm glad, actually, my family moved from there. Um, and then I was kind of raised in Colorado and ended up out here after traveling all around. And that's, that's our world today. But in their day, they pretty much stay where they were born. And you do what so, your you do what your father did. Right? Pardon? You do what your father did. You learn what right tree exactly. And that's and this is known. Bethsaida is known to be a, a fishing village. In fact, when Karen and I were there, um, when I was there in 2002, it hadn't been excavated yet. Um, and when we were there in 2010, it had been excavated. And we actually had the privilege of going with one of the archaeologists that did part of that excavation. And he. Uh, and, and when you see these excavations, what happens is, is that they're cutting down through layers of soil, right? Because as they cut down, you're uncovering time. Well, when they find artifacts, so you're trying to find artifacts to help inform you about the peoples that live there. So an artifact is, is an external sign of uh, some kind of activity. We do this when we do evangelism, too. You know, I don't know if I ever showed you guys the cultural onion. Some of you have seen it. The idea is, is that when we interact with people, we're interacting with the artifacts of their life. Artifacts would be like uh, clothing, food, food stuffs, um, languages, those kinds of things. And we think that that's what a culture is. It isn't. That's just an artifact. But when you're doing archaeology, you're going down through the layers, trying to find these artifacts so you can understand something about the cultures of the peoples that were there. And as they go through these layers and they find the artifacts, they take them off to a museum. So by the time people like me get to go there, it's like ruin, ruin, whole, whole. You don't really see anything, right? And they'll tell you, oh yeah, this was a fishing village and this was a fisherman's house. It's like, well, how do you know it was a fisherman's house? There's nothing there, right? It's just a hole. Well, when they were excavating, they found fish hooks, they found weights that they would have used. So they did fishing similar to the way that we do fishing. The weights would have been on nets. And they still fish it that way today, where they have these cast nets, they throw out the nets, throw out drag nets, um, and you know, actual lines and things like that. And so they found a collection of this stuff when they were cut through the layers. And that would have been what they call the fisherman's house. Could have been John's house. Could have been Peter's house. We don't know. The, the uh, tradition says that it was Peter's house. So even though Peter had a mother-in-law over here at Capernaum. Um, so he didn't go very far to find his wife. He just went to the next village over. Um, he was also from Bethsaida, he and his brother, Andrew. And this is actually going to be important when we get a little bit further into John. We're going to find out that uh, John, who we call John the Apostle, and Andrew, Peter's brother, were the first to, as they were following uh, John the Baptist, were the first to actually meet Jesus as Messiah. Now, they may have met him in some other context, but they all of a sudden met him as Messiah, which is a very interesting thing. Um, so, Jesus' uh, 
ministry, even though it may have started down here, it started with folks up here. So John was a fisherman. He was a simple guy. He was religious in the sense that even though he was rough and tumble, and I can just imagine um, with his leathers on, right, and his uh, stainless steel studs, and on the back, you know, he's got the emblem on the back of his jacket, Sons of Thunder. <laughs> um, he was one of those that would surprise you and that he actually really cared about um, God and God's economy. Uh, I experienced this one time. You can't judge a book by its cover, right? So I, I was over at uh, Multnomah Falls, and I know you've heard me tell this story. And I'm walking along through the parking lot, and there's one of these guys, Sons of Thunder, right? It's like when you see him, it's like, I don't want to make eye contact. I don't want to really change my course because I don't want to show any fear. Because <laughs> uh, this guy's going to eat me for lunch. So, so he just kind of goes, and I'm looking out of the corner of my eye at this son of the thunder guy. And uh, he has an uh, emblem on the front of his shirt that says, not milk. And uh, it caught my eye. So I turned and I looked and it said, Hebrews, chapter 5. Right, so uh, the verse that he was had quoted on his shirt was, um, "For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil." Right, this guy was a disciple of Christ. Multnomah Falls. John would become a disciple of Christ. So it's interesting how these rough and tumble guys. Uh, actually might have a real heart for God. And uh, Brother James, spirited, he was long-lived. So I think he kind of hit, who is this guy John? Right? We, it's actually an anonymous gospel. It doesn't tell you who wrote it. We attribute this to John because it talks about the one who wrote this was called the Beloved Disciple. And we know from other accounts that at the Last Supper, um, when they were uh, around that kind of U-shaped uh, low table, that John, because they, when you're, when you, you know, we have these tables where you have chairs and you know, belly up to them, they would actually have to kind of lay down on their side because these were low tables to the ground, um, and they would kind of lay on their side, propped up, maybe on a pillow or maybe somebody next to them as they're eating. In this case, it was a Passover meal. And John, or whoever it was, the beloved disciple, was uh, leaning up against Jesus. And uh, he was the one that was asked by Peter. Peter was curious when Jesus made a comment about who would betray him. Um, he said, hey, John, you're leaning on Jesus. Ask him what he means, right? Well, we understand from that description that that was the beloved disciple. So we attribute the Gospel of John to John the Apostle, the one who was leaning on Jesus' breast, because of that dialogue. So that's really the, the root source of why we say, yeah, this was written by John, because the, one, the author is uh, kind of identified as a beloved disciple. So that's, that's who wrote it. Um, There's discussion, as because it's anonymous, as to whether he really wrote it or not. But the early church, I'll just cut right to the, the chase here. The early church said that it was uh, written by John. So this was attested to early in uh, church history. 
And the internal evidence suggests that it was a person of John's background. So the Greek that it's written in is very simple. It's very good, but it's very simple. It's a, a little bit better Greek than, than Peter, so John might have been a better student, even though Peter was a faster runner. Um, and uh, it, it has that kind of Hebrew understanding, so it would have been someone who was from a Hebrew culture as opposed to a, a Greek um, Roman culture. Uh, it has, uh, it represents some of the customs and what they call Hebrew idioms in language. So we understand that even though it was written in Greek, it was written by somebody whose native language was would have been Hebrew by training and Aramaic by um, what they spoke every day. So we see that in if you look at the original language here. Um, and we also recognize that this was an eyewitness, and that's how the internal evidence that this was actually John the Evangelist. So when was this written? So answered the, the who question, at least to my satisfaction, uh, it's to you all's satisfaction. Um, when was this written? Uh, we know from some of the internal evidence of what is provided in the gospel itself that this probably occurred before the destruction of Rome. The temple was still standing. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. And that uh, destruction was complete and stands to this day. So the uh, Jewish temple was not rebuilt after that destruction. That was the second destruction of the temple. The first was by the Babylonians. This one was by the Romans. And uh, the, the tense, you know, speaking of things in future tense or past tense, um, is such that it suggests that this was written before 70 AD. So some people would like to say, well, John lived a long time. Um, why uh, didn't he write it later? Because we think that Revelation was probably written towards the end of his life, like around 95 AD. We're saying that this was written before 70 AD. What I would suggest is that the Gospels, um, as, a, as a document, not as an oral tradition, but as a document, a documented, you know, somebody wrote it down, uh, probably started around 50 BC. So if you look at the uh, crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection occurring in April of 33 AD, and I, you know, and when we were studying Daniel, I kind of unpacked that for you a little bit. I believe that the resurrection was on April 5th, 33 AD, and that Pentecost that followed that year was the establishment of the church as we know it today. Um, that means that this was written within, uh, probably started being written within 17 years. So when people are trying to build evidence that the uh, what's contained in the gospel is true and not a myth, Myths don't come about in 17 years because there are still eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. And uh, Paul made note of that when he was sharing the gospel in his letters to the Corinthians. He said, you know, um, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and he was buried. And on the third day, he was raised according to the scripture and he was seen by a whole lot of folk, most of whom are still here to this day. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's the time frame that this was written in. It was written when there were still eyewitnesses that could attest to what John wrote. 
And the reason uh, John wrote it is one of the questions we want to ask. But I would suggest that this was starting to be written in its nascent form uh, shortly after the first gospel started coming out. There was a reason why people started putting it down on paper and not just relying upon oral tradition. Part of it had to do with the growth of the church, expansion of the church. Part of it had to do with persecution. Part of it had to do with heresy that was creeping into the church. Right? In a very short period of time, the enemy of the church was trying to get a foothold and to distort the truth. And so one way of um, addressing that is through a formal teaching practice, which they uh, adopted as the bishops, the elders. They would have a teaching elder. And this became, in early church history, what they call the monoepiscopacy, one bishop. And then you would have one bishop over a region, and they would be responsible for orthodox teaching. And, uh, and before that could happen, they had to have that orthodox teaching written down. And that's what the gospel messages are. They're the orthodox teaching collection of both Jesus' teaching, but more than that, it's a collection about who the Christ is. This is our basic theological framework, that we understand the completion of, of God's covenant to us, right? So if I look at the Bible as one unified theme, and I, I recognize that what it is, is it's a revelation of God's person and his character to humanity, telling us not only about himself, but his purpose, his plan, both in creation of humanity, and in relationship with humanity, and in redemption of humanity, right? That there's a purpose that we have this revelation from God. That what that is captured or expressed through throughout the scriptural history is through covenant. That we see this concept of covenant, which has to do with relationship with God first, right? You define, if you look at the elements of covenant, you have relationship defined, the parties involved in the covenant. You have a promise associated with the covenant. You have a set of terms that describe the content of the covenant. And then you have performance or obligation associated with the covenant. And what I will suggest is that a covenant of love creates an obligation of obedience mm -hmm. and love. We love him because he first loved us. And what John is about is, is codifying or documenting, not codifying, documenting the completion of that covenant in Jesus Christ. So he wants us to know who Christ is and why he came. And I shared with you the theme verse of uh, the thesis of John, if you will. If you look at this as a, um, you know, this is your, your uh, master's thesis, right? Um, he writes in chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. This is an eyewitness who actually saw and was party to the life of Jesus. He says, they're not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So as I read through my quick scans through, through John, the ones where I don't get bogged down, this is one of the verses that keeps popping off the page to me. It's the, it's the theme verse. What John wants to tell me and why he's going to this uh, process of putting this whole account down is so that I will know who Jesus Christ is. 
I will understand something about his, his nature, his character, and his purpose. And that um, in that, a relationship opportunity is created. And we understand this in a sense of obligation. In other words, we're invited. We have an obligation to respond. Now, our response may be negative, but it's a response. Or our response may be positive. It may be believing in him and what he has come to do. And in that, we have life. And that this isn't just, um, you know, many people would say that computers are alive today because they can do all sorts of animated things. It isn't just animation. It's actually the real substance of life itself. It's the life that God breathed in to his creation. It is eternal life. It's life in Jesus. And that life was demonstrated by the resurrection. A little bit of theology there. So, um, when I look at this, I'm looking at this as uh, probably written through as part of that early gospel message. But there are uh, things that, as I told you, the first 18 verses and the last chapter kind of stand out as separate from the body of work. And the reason why is because um, even though John may have written it down initially as part of that effort for, for uh, putting down orthodox teaching um, and, and fighting heresy, there were things that happened in history that he wanted to address. Things that happened in history were that the, the um, apostles were being martyred. And two of the apostles that were very significant in the worldwide church were Peter and Paul. And they were both martyred by Nero in Rome before the destruction of the temple. So they were probably killed around 66 AD. And if you keep that in mind, that that's one of the things that was going on in the context of John, it makes sense that you would have chapter 21. Sometimes this is called the epilogue. It was added after the main body of work to address a current problem. And the current problem was is that people didn't know what was going to happen to the church in the absence of the early leaders. Is this church built on charisma? Is it built on the person of Peter? Or is it built on the confession of Peter? And the confession of John? And the confession of all of those that were disciples of Christ. What is the church? It is that confession of who Christ is, what he came to do, and my personal faith in that. That's what the church is about. That's the church universal. And what chapter 21 is about is to reassure this church that even with the loss of Peter... The, the church goes forward. In fact, it goes forward today probably stronger in many ways than it ever has in history. I think that even though the world is deteriorating and going right down into the sewer, the kingdom of God is marching forward to the coming of Christ. And that it may be a refinement. It may be that there's a lot of, of uh, ref, you know, heat applied and pressure applied to the church today, but what pops out at the end of that heat and pressure and trial is the pure gold. Mm -hmm. 
and the, and the diamond, right? That which is uh, incredibly precious to God because he recognizes that it is the true, the pure communion that he desired. So I think that's what chapter 21 is about. We're talking about, this is all still in the context of when. I think it was written before uh, 70 AD. I think that um, it's in some ways a looking back. It's a perspective of the gospel to capture that that core teaching. Um, it's what is uh, remaining of this today in actual uh, manuscript form is some of the earliest manuscripts we have. So if you look at the New Testament, it's made up of over 20,000 different manuscripts. And those manuscripts um, might be written on parchment, they might be written on paper, they might be written on leather skin. Um, and what what happened is, is that John wrote this down in some form, and then others in the church copied it. And the ones who copied it were probably not professional scribes like they had in the Jewish um, faith. They actually had a person that their job was to memorize scripture, to preserve the oral tradition, and then to write it down, to carry it forward. Um, there may have been some of those who actually did that with the New Testament, but primarily it was written by untrained uh, scholars. People that had some training, either for business or law, and uh, they ended up writing these things down. Well, the earliest manuscript that survives today is a portion of John chapter 18. It's called the Pyre 51. And uh, it's actually that story in chapter 18. If you look at that, it's the uh, when Jesus was on trial before Pilate. Right? And Jesus gives his testimony to Pilate about the nature of who he is and what he came for. That's what survives to this day. So it's interesting that God preserved in history part of that thematic expression that John wrote down. Right? So it's uh, part of the earliest um, manuscript evidence. So if we've answered the question of who and when, I've hinted at what the why is. Why was John written? I've pretty much told you. So we understand that part of it was preservation of the church. Part of it was preservation of orthodox doctrine, that which we believe about Christ um, and about his work, and also about what God said about humanity, the nature of our, our lostness, right? That we are already judged. It's not like we have to come before the judge and he's going to then say, oh yeah, I see that you did this and you did that and this was good and that was bad. No, we're already condemned. It's actually a withholding of the sentence that is occurring, not the judgment. We're already condemned. Christ came to deliver us from that condemnation. Right? Um, so we understand that is what we would call good news. That's the gospel message. Eternal life. But there were also other things that were going on. 
there was, uh, I mentioned that Peter and Paul had died, um, but there was also this um, movement that came up called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, you'll, you'll hear about it today uh, in different um, texts that have been discovered. One of them was uh, the Gospel of Thomas. Right? But notice that's not your Bible. That's because it's not uh, canonized by the church. It's not part of um, what is accepted orthodox teaching by the church. Um, rather, it's a, uh, and there's, there's a couple others too, there's a, the letters of Barnabas and other stuff that is not included in your Bible. And this Gnostic movement, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, And it's it's one of the words for knowledge, and one of the, there's a couple of words for for knowledge. Um, one of the words for knowledge has to do with like head knowledge, what you would do when you go to university, right? You read a bunch of books, you memorize a bunch of facts. On the test, you regurgitate those facts, and hopefully you pass, um, and that's head knowledge. But anybody that's ever been to university or school of any kind, and then you go out into the real world, you get your first job, you find out what the difference is between what you learned in school and what you need to know on the job. That's called experiential knowledge. Sometimes it's called OJT, on-the-job training. Right? And that the head knowledge is good, but the experiential knowledge is, is a kind of knowledge that um, you carry for life. I can't trust my memory. But I'm not going to forget my experiences, right? So when I say I can't trust my memory, I can't trust that I'm going to remember the formula for um, calculating the circumference of a circle, although everybody knows that, right? That's a real simple one. Um, but I am not going to forget what happened to me when I came to understand what Christ had done for me. That was experiential knowledge. I actually came into relationship. It is personal for me. That's the word gnosis. It's a kind of experiential knowledge as opposed to a head knowledge. And this Gnostic movement said that people had to have a special experience of knowledge in order to be saved. Now, I would say that that's true, but it's also false. It isn't something that is... Um, hidden or um, reserved for a select few. But the Gnostic movement said, no, 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 this experiential knowledge is hidden and it's reserved for a select few. And that the basis of this knowledge was that God could not actually be in communion with, with humanity. There had to be a separation between God and man. Uh, because God is holy and humanity isn't. Matters is evil, and spirit is good. So this goes back to Greek philosophy. And what they did is they put together a philosophical system to express this idea that you would have a special knowledge of understanding these uh, emanations and how um, that which is good could actually uh, come into contact with that which is bad. And it was a false teaching. It wasn't what God had revealed. It was what man had put together. And it doesn't mean that there were totally um, untrue things in it, because 
they're talking about truth. So anytime you're talking about truth, you're expressing aspects of truth that can be affirmed, right? That we would affirm, we'd say, yeah, there is one God, right? Um, where we would disagree is we would disagree about the person of Christ. And that they had a different understanding of the person of Christ. That he wasn't real. That he didn't actually, uh, he wasn't flesh and blood. But we, what we understand, especially through John, uh, we get down here and it says in John chapter 1 verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When he writes that sentence, he's specifically targeting this problem of Gnosticism that was prevalent in that period of time. So part of the why of John wrote this, one was to capture um, the Orthodox teaching, what Jesus came to do and what he said, but it was also to refute heretical teaching in the case of Gnosticism. And to bring hope in the case of Peter and Paul's death. So that's the why. We've, we've covered who, when, why, um, what was happening in the reader's world. I believe I've, I've uh, kind of uh, given you as to you know, what was going on. The, uh, the peoples that had repopulated the land after the Babylonian captivity and then Cyrus the Persian king released the Jews and they returned from exile into the land. The first thing they did is they rebuilt the temple, right? Because the temple is the place where people communed with God. That's where God and man could coexist, was at the temple. Even though there was a separation, there was a curtain that only the high priest could go beyond that curtain. Um, the temple was designed and, and uh, established with the idea that man and God would have communion there. That's where man and God meet. Um, is there a different why for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? So what's the why for John as opposed to another three? Yes. So Matthew, let's take a look at Matthew. What is uh, the main theme of Matthew? Have you studied Matthew? I haven't passed. Okay. I heard it was from more of a Jewish... Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. And so in that sense, he was worse than a Gentile. Uh, because he was benefiting from the, the way that the state did business. That they would break this area up into different provinces. And so the way taxes worked is that the emperor always got his tax. right? So he gets the first cut. And then what he would do is he would sell tax areas to uh, procurators, so they would have these uh, rulers over a region, and their whole rule was one, keep the peace and collect the tax. And he didn't tell them how much tax or how to do it as long as he got his cut. So then they would set up their taxing districts, and uh, they might put a governor over their district, a guy like uh, Pontius Pilate, right? And that, uh, so they, they would collect from all of their governors taxes such that they could support themselves and their program and give their cut to the emperor. Then the, the governors over, over a district would then um, collect their tax. 
they take their cut um, for them, their program, and pass it upstream. Well, them and their program might be even further subdivided. You might have uh, a guy who could keep the peace by the name of Herod because he had some relationship to the peoples that you had conquered. And uh, Herod would come in and have his tax. And then what would happen is he would basically sell rights to collect taxes to somebody is actually down there holding the poor peasant hostage, right? Give me my tax. That was Matthew. So Matthew was a tax collector. And uh, so he was worse than a Gentile because he was part of this system of pilfering from the people and oppression. And if you look at Matthew, it's about um, the, the kingship of Christ. That uh, the Son of Man... So the, one of the key verses in Matthew is in chapter 26, verse 64. So Jesus said to him when he's on trial, uh, You've said it yourself. He is the Christ. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So again, it shares theme in understanding who Christ is, but it's uh, expressing it in a different way. It's expressing it through the, the traditional... Uh, uh, prophet, um, priest, king understanding from scripture, which we would go back to Samuel and we would look at the uh, Davidic covenant and, and that kind of stuff. And so Matthew's focus is revealing Christ as king, right? John reveals Christ, um, and indeed Christ is king, and he is still labeled king of the Jews, and, and is on trial for that, but his focus is that he has the uh, a same um, essence and character as the Father. In other words, it's about the um, the communal nature of the Godhead, okay. right? And that that's why he says, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." Right? You don't see that anywhere else. You see it in John. In fact, ninety percent of the content of John is unique, so it must be saying the same thing in a different way right. with a different because some of the some of, a lot of the miracles he said, well, there's a lot less miracles in John as opposed to the other synoptics. Right. But then at the same time, when he does say, when he does utilize the same miracle, he he says different things about it. Right. Like walking on the water. Right. Like he leaves out a lot of details that the other ones don't talk about, and right. vice versa. So I just wonder why. Like what reason, are you trying to get at? The reason why is because if you're approaching it through the prophet, the priest, and the king, the traditional understanding of the administration of God, his kingdom on earth. Um, and you actually have the Lord's Prayer in uh, Matthew and Luke, right? Um, Our Father who art in heaven, place, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you'll see a focus on uh, kingdom administration. And that we understand from the prophetic works in the Old Testament, kingdom administration occurs through the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so the way that that occurs is through preservation of, uh, I would say, declarative revelation. So that would be the law. It's a declaration of what it looks like uh, to be a citizen of, of the kingdom of God. And so the teaching, uh, so if you look at Matthew, it's organized around five discourses. And those are five teachings, collecting of teachings. And so that's why you have a lot more in uh, parables, you have a lot more in 
uh, miracles that are contributing to that teaching base that would be uh, more typical for a Jew. Whereas John takes a little bit different approach. He takes it, let's look at it more from the perspective of how the world um, sees it as opposed to how the Jew sees it. So it's more for a Gentile crowd? You could apply it more to a Gentile crowd, even though John is a Hebrew. Right. He's writing to Hebrews. He's addressing the problems that the Gentiles brought as a church group, which is heresy of different kinds. And the understanding of how can God be man? Right. right? The Jews struggled with that too. But I don't know about you guys, but that was one of the first challenges that I had in my faith. Well, and Muslims also have a huge issue with yes. how can God have a son that doesn't make yeah, yes. that's offensive. How can, how can God be man? How can God actually walk among us? Right. Mm-hmm. So John wants us to understand how can God walk among us and what does it look like when he does it? Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, that's a different different understanding. So, uh, and of course, I started late, so I'm out of time, but we're almost there. I'll just tell you the where question is answered, Ephesus. It's written in Ephesus. Um, That's where John was and did a lot of his ministry out of. Um, And that the the main theses are going to be about knowing, gnosis, uh, believing, pisteo, and remaining, or abiding in, and, it, and that has to do with where you live, dwell. Um, it has to do with uh, the nature of uh, communion. So John's going to really help us understand those things. Faith, communion, and knowing in an experiential way. He's going to give us a true gnosis. So that's kind of what John is about. Um, I'll go into the how, how it's organized. Um, next week and we'll actually uh, read. But I'd like to end with reading the first 18 verses because it's not right that we would have a teaching and not read the Bible here other than the Psalms. So I'm just going to read this and then we'll close with prayer. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have received, we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, 
who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, or executed him. Let's go ahead and close there, and we'll begin unpacking that next week. Lord, thank you so much for opportunity to come to your word. And know we dwell in the who's, what's, and why's, Lord, um, with the hope that um, understanding context will help enlighten us as we read through your word, that we won't take your word in isolation, but we'll take it in whole, mm -hmm. that uh, the, the whole counsel uh, that you deliver to us is that which we desire. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, expand our minds in that regard, help us to understand as we read through this, uh, but not just our minds, Lord, that you would put this deep in our heart, that this would affect who we are and how we live to the point of actually declaring you uh, to all the world even in our death, Lord, we thank you that you will be there with us and you will carry us into your bosom that we will be with you forever. And Lord, um, as we address these issues in Scripture, uh, again, we ask for your mercy and your grace. Uh, thank you, Lord, for carrying us through. Lord, we thank you for your provision for us and your protection of us. And Lord, for your service to us on the cross. We thank you so much. <coughs> Lord, we ask you to be with Pastor Bob this morning as he... Uh, delivers your message from Malachi. Lord, help us uh, this week as we go forth in our studies and in our our communion with our, our neighbors, Lord, whether it be at work or whatever activity we're doing. Lord, we thank you for that. We ask your blessing and thank you for all of this in your name. Lord Jesus, we pray.